You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast as a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Brad Tolinsky. He's the former editor-in-chief of Guitar World magazine. He is a prolific author. He was on the podcast just a few months ago discussing his book, Eruption, about the career of Eddie Van Halen. I sent him a note afterward thanking him for coming on that podcast. It was a terrific discussion, especially for someone like me who grew up with Van Halen's music. I noticed in doing my research that he wrote a book on Jimmy Page, and it's called Light and Shade, and it is terrific. I asked him to come back on, and he has consented. Brad, thank you so much for your time. Hey, Robert. Pleasure to be back. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. The book we're discussing today is called Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. And if you don't want to take my word for it, that it's absolutely wonderful. How about this guy? Quote, this is the most comprehensive and compelling collection of interviews, insights, and historical anecdotes of one of rock and roll's premier guitarists, songwriters, and producers ever compiled. A fascinating must-have for Jimmy Page fans like myself. That's from Slash. Brad, you outdid yourself with this book. It is a time warp. It is fascinating. It's funny. It's somewhat irreverent in some spots. So informative. Um, let's jump right into it. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit, maybe some general topics before we get into uh, specific uh, parts of the book. But um, when did you first meet Jimmy Page? What comes through in this book is Maybe it's a journalistic friendship, but there's clearly a friendship between you and Mr. Page. How did that form? Well, uh, 
I was uh, the editor chief of Guitar World and, uh, you know, like probably many of you out there and, and you, Robert, you know, one of my favorite bands of all time is Led Zeppelin and one of my favorite players was Jimmy Page. And uh, uh, Jimmy had just sort of come out of uh, a long period of inactivity and did a record with uh, David Coverdale. Um, I guess this is back in the late 80s, early 90s. I forget the year. Um, and uh, we arranged to do a cover story on him uh, on on Jimmy for Guitar World. And when it came time to assign who would do the story, uh, that's the perks of being the editor in chief. Yourself to the stories that you would like to do, and and uh, it was very very exciting for me to um, to speak with Jimmy. Um, I mean, he was one of the major influences on me as a guitar player, one of the big three, certainly when I was growing up, uh, you know, the other being Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, of course. Uh, so I prepared like a madman for this interview. <laughs> because I'm, I'm heard, familiar. I also heard that Jimmy was, could be difficult. So I had really, really prepared for it. And um, I spent, most of the time out of respect to him talking about the new record and not Led Zeppelin. And, and he took a shine to me for both of those reasons. A, I was very prepared. I could talk with him about guitar playing, about production, all those kinds of things. And um, I didn't make the conversation about Led Zeppelin. I made it about his current project, which is what he was interested in at the moment. And so we struck up a real, uh, you know, a sort of a friendship and, and uh, around that time, they also were releasing these uh, sort of Led Zeppelin greatest hits packages. And so I had a chance to speak with Jimmy again, and this time about Led Zeppelin. And uh, he just let me add it. I mean, he, he, it, it was incredible. I mean, I think the, first couple times we talked it there were like three four hour long marathons mm. and he sort of expressed that he enjoyed talking about it because i was you know focusing on the on how great the music you know and and questions about that what was he seems to be among the surviving band members and correct me if, if i'm wrong i don't think i'm overstating this but it's possible he seems to be the most proud of what took place under Zeppelin when Zeppelin was going. Is that, is that fair to say? I mean, he was kind of, I've watched some documentaries and one of the things that comes through in all the documentaries is that, is that page is the driving force behind well, Zeppelin. He was the driving force. He always was though. I mean, so it's no surprise. He basically put the band together. He found all the people. Uh, including the manager, and uh, he produced all the records. Uh, it was essentially, the band was initially very much his vision of what he wanted music to be and what he wanted to sound like. And he went about in very meticulously finding the people that could uh, produce that uh, idea. You know, So it's always been his baby to some degree. But Paige was 
somebody, for lack of a better term, before Zeppelin. Yeah. What was his reputation and notoriety before he formed this band? Well, Jimmy had a, had an incredible career before Led Zeppelin. Um, you know, as a teenager, he played in, in local London bands and was very well regarded in that circuit. And one day, uh, um, a record producer saw him play and said, hey, you know, this is, I would say, in the early 60s, you know, 63, 64, 65, around the time when the Beatles were just sort of going. And they were like, we need some young kid to do session work mm. to, to make the, to, to make these help us with these rock and roll records, you know. So um, he had been having health issues and wanted to get out of the club circuit anyways and thought, hey, it would be really cool to be a, a session musician. And uh, he went on to uh, play on at one, one time it was estimated something like 60% of the records that came out of England. <laughs> and he played for the, if you read through your book and some other articles, the Stones, that didn't I think I read where he played like a, maybe a lick or a part of a hard, uh, hard day's night or something for the Beatles. Like, like these aren't, these aren't just like microwave commercials he's playing for. These are big artists, big songs. Yeah, no, uh, you know, the who the kinks, uh, them, which was Van Morrison's, uh, first band. Um, you know, he played on, uh, the song Goldfinger, you know, from, uh, James Bond theme. And, uh, just a lot of the stuff that was coming out of England at the time, there were basically two uh, session guys. And uh, one was Jim Sullivan and one was Jimmy Page. And they called uh, Jim Sullivan Big Jim and they called Jimmy Page Little Jim. <laughs> but Jimmy wasn't really that little. I mean, he's a good six foot tall. So <laughs> you know, I think it was just more that he was more of the junior status. He came second. So anyways, he, he had a, he had a, unbelievable career as a session musician but then he saw all of his friends you know like getting screamed at by girls and having fun out on the road and so he decided he wanted to play in a in a band and got the opportunity to um to join jeff back in the yardbirds and uh you know the yardbirds are not so famous these days i mean it's they've they've been lost a little bit in that in, in time, but the records were really cool and innovative. And Jimmy played on the very last Yardbirds record. Well, uh, I was going to ask you that. Cause that comes through in your book. You, you, you chronicle that period really well. Yeah. How did, how did Paige describe his time as a member of the Yardbirds? Well, the thing is what Jimmy basically's main point was there couldn't have been Led Zeppelin without his, work in the studio because of all the different things and the different styles he learned while being a studio musician. And then he got a good solid couple of years out on the road with the Yardbirds and learned about, you know, the American market and traveling and, and playing in bands. So it was this great education, what he, he, he saw it as the thing that, that, uh, you know, most young players don't get these days that kind of experience before they start their bands, right? Yeah. So everybody wonders why the first Led Zeppelin record sounds so great. Well, gee, by the time Led Zeppelin recorded their first record, Jimmy was had been an experienced studio guy, had experience producing records, and had 
plenty of time playing live in front of audiences. How was Paige's playing and writing, actually, influenced by American blues? And how did he turn it into rock's most powerful sound? Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, people talk about the blues element, and that was a big deal in Led Zeppelin's sound. But really, the Led Zeppelin sound is made up of three components. And it's it's the blues is one of them. But the other thing was J- Jimmy's was also very, very interested in British folk as well. And uh, you hear that coming through on, you know, songs like Stairway to Heaven, most famously, and all the acoustic music on Led Zeppelin three. But he was also influenced by, um, uh, you know, East Indian music and, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, songs like, uh, you know, Kashmir or uh, um, the Eastern influence sounds of, of Black Mountain Side. I mean, it's the first, it's some of the first examples of world music, you know, of, of like music from other cultures being blended in with, with rock music. So the blues were very important to Jimmy. I mean, it, it gave him like the it, a, a lot of the ideas for his solo electric guitar stuff. But it was these other influences that really made, I think, Led Zeppelin something special, much less, uh, you know, more di- more more than having one dimension than, say, um, you know, uh, just if they were a blues blues band, a boogie band or a heavy metal band or something like on Led Zeppelin four, you have going to California and then. Is it going to California followed by four sticks or four sticks followed by going to California where you're like, if you listen to them back to back, you wonder if they were the same band. But if you knew Led Zeppelin songs and and the musicianship, you're completely convinced they were the same band. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was that was something that Jimmy was. You know, most guys, a lot of rock guys will say, just sort of happened you know oh yeah you know we were just messing around but jimmy was never like that i mean he's always methodical in what he does and and you can see the building blocks from the first record to the very last incorporating all these different uh you know unusual elements into that blues rock sound and that's one of the things that comes to really strongly in your book we're talking to brad tolinsky author of light and shade conversations with jimmy page and it seems to me and in contrast i'm only going to reference this a few times but to the van halen book that you wrote that we discussed a a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. is that it, it seems like that that page's career was really one layer on top of another i did this and now i'm going to do this plus this and then i'm going to add another element to it and the next question I want to ask you is kind of along that theme. How critical to his career success and that of his bands was Jimmy's ability, abilities as a producer? Um, it was it was crucial, um, y- you know, but it wasn't just self-indulgence. I mean, as it turns out, Jimmy Page ends up being one of the greatest producers of all time. (laughs) Um, You know, without getting too nerdy about it, probably the way Jimmy recorded 
or had John Bonham's drum kit recorded. The sound of the drums from Led Zeppelin went on. It's probably one of the most influential uh, things any band has done in the in the in the twentieth and twenty first century. Like what happened was Jimmy took that drum sound and made it much bigger than they usually were on records and placed it right up front with the rest of the instruments. That's his idea. That's not something that happened from accident. That's part of his production idea. You know, the idea of getting a singer who sings high so that the voice is out of the way of those drums and the guitars, you know, mm-hmm. so that it, so that it comes across and hits you in a certain way. Those a lot of those are production ideas, and and um, you know if if the band had been produced by anybody else, it just wouldn't have sounded like they did. Let me give you an example. Uh, try to give you an example. So, Mickey Most was a a big British producer, and he was the guy that produced the Yardbirds record that Jimmy Page played on. And Jimmy and him fought the whole time about, you know, how the band should sound and how the band should be. And the Little Games record, which is the last, um, which is the record that Jimmy plays on, it's just got so much goofy, weird stuff on it, uh, you know. And Mickey Most was a very respected producer at the time, but 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 Page had this other idea way beyond everybody else, you know, as to the way the band should sound. And so it was crucial that he was in charge so that he could deliver that sound. It wouldn't have happened any other way. This is a quote I had for a question later on in the interview, but I can't resist it. When asked about forming his band, Jimmy Page said that he wanted a powerful drum sound and then said, quote, but Bonham was beyond the realms of anything I could have possibly imagined. Yeah. It, a once a lifetime drummer. And it took, it would have taken someone like Bonham to impress page because he was a session musician. He had been around all these musicians. He had done his band. He had done his touring. And doesn't it show, is it, is that probably the most significant evidence that Bonham changed rock and roll sound, not just drum sound. Yeah. No. Um, you know, obviously drummers don't get quite the attention that uh, guitar players get because they're way be- they're behind the scenes. But I mean, that was sort of the wonderful thing about, you know, just going back about the music of the sixties and the seventies before everything became computerized and put on a grid you know, all the musicians had personalities and contributed to the sound. You know, you couldn't have had the who without Keith Moon. No way. You know, the who, you know, Uh, you couldn't have had yes without Bill Bruford playing the drums. I mean, he is such a distinctive approach. And the same thing with John Bonham. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 his, the, his ideas say on, on a song like four sticks mm. or cashmere. I mean, you can't imagine it. You can't imagine any other drummer playing on those tracks or coming up with those ideas. 
going back to some general questions, I, I'm, I, I have pulled us forward because I had to get that quote in because I read it multiple times and just thought, wow, what an amazing compliment about Bonham. But something that you detail in your book is Jimmy Page's association and or fascination with the occult. Mm-hmm. How did that affect him or influence him as a musician or as a rock and roll personality? You know, that's a it's a super complex uh, question, and I won't go into too much crazy detail about it. But I, I did try to present it in a way in the book that people would understand uh, its importance to Jimmy. And it wasn't just sort of a flaky. He wasn't a dilettante about it, you know. I mean, he really believed in, or does still to, you know, believe in the, you know, mystical powers. And um, Jimmy would call it comparative religions. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a form, it was a form of spirituality uh, to him, you know. And um, everybody always talks about Aleister Crowley. Uh, who is the most notorious of all the occult figures and, and try to link it with Jimmy Page and it being this sort of dark thing. But Jimmy wasn't just into Crowley. He was into all sorts of, uh, you know, metaphysical literature and, uh, you know, and reading history and, and on religion and on philosophy. Um, he did believe that, you know, music, had mystical powers and 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 uh and influences you know and i don't but i don't think it's necessarily you know the devil or something like that we're just talking about uh you know sort of the wonderful power that it has to uh to you know music has to uh work on us in all sorts of different kinds of levels. Um, and I think that Jimmy was, was interested in that, but he wasn't interested in it in sort of a goofy way. It was very serious. You know, he was very well read on the subject matter. Um, I know quite a bit about that stuff myself. So uh, that was another way we were able to, um, you know, uh, communicate to each other. There were, there were accusations. Which yeah. seemed odd, maybe. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's the only word I can think of at the moment that some of Led Zeppelin's tragedies and problems in the latter half of the 70s were related to Pages dabbling in the occult. That sounds like that sounds so crazy that it, I guess it could only be a 1970s theory. But what do you make of that criticism? Is it just jealousy or people looking for headlines i just as i read it in your book and i've I've obviously heard about it before i just was like okay so you actually think that robert plant's son died because jimmy page wore pants with a dragon on them yeah yeah well um you know that 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 stuff like that always sort of comes out of uh ignorance um i would probably say their problems came more out of the influence of uh, cocaine and heroin than it did. Well, you anticipated my next question, so go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
you know, um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the 70s that felt very normal back then that right now everybody looks at as, as excessive. But if you were in the rock world in the 1970s, there were two things that, you, that A, you probably do in cocaine, and B, you probably believed that it, that it was harmless because back then people really didn't know about it. They thought it was a non-addictive drug. And uh, it made you feel like a, a, a giant among men. And if you're a giant among men to begin with, and you feel even gianter because you've just done a bunch of blow. <laughs> <laughs> musicians had dealers who <laughs> musicians had dealers who traveled the world with them. Yeah, absolutely. Like their, their, their connection or whatever was with them at all times, just in case. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've talked to Jimmy about it, you know, I, and go to, into great, great detail, but uh, you know, he said, you know, it was part of the culture, it was part of the, you know, what was going on at the times, and um, uh, you know, people just didn't know as much about the effects of of any of the of any of this stuff or the, um, you know, the psychological effects or physical effects, and and. Uh, you know, drugs make you do weird things, make you do things that that you, you probably, if you thought twice about, you wouldn't have. You know, so that probably had more to do with the the you know Led Zeppelin falling apart than 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 any of uh, Jimmy's occult interests. Yeah, the saying is "sex, drugs, and rock and roll," and it seems that uh, Jimmy Page did all three with abandon. Yeah, and you would have too if you were there. <laughs> right before this podcast, all three. Uh, <laughs> like so many others uh, in, the, in the rock and roll world, it seems that, that many of them abandon their formal kind of education, as we would take as public school education, to concentrate on being a musician. Um, how helpful was it for these musicians and Paige to accelerate their career by focusing on one thing, one goal. Well, you know, I mean, that's sort of an interesting question. Uh, not to, not to be contradictory, but it's probably a little less applicable to Zeppelin because Jimmy actually went back to college while he was mm -hmm. doing session work. And John Paul Jones was, pretty educated and um you know probably john bonham was the only one that was super working class and it was either focus on music or uh you know becoming a bricklayer and i think john probably would have been his father was in construction i think uh i think he would have just been he would have been happy to be a bricklayer as well but you know for 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 a lot of people it's like um you know it's it's you know they'll focus on their music because that's that's really what it is that they want to do and and i don't see why that should be considered any better any worse than getting a an education in school i mean it's a different sort of education i've had um you know good friends of mine have gotten pretty successful right out of uh you know high school and got in got into bands 
And they ended up traveling the world and doing all sorts of fantastic things that they would have never had a chance to do had they had gone to school and not become a musician. You know, it's just a tricky, it's just tricky to, to, uh, to maintain that as a living, you know, you have to be very lucky. I'm going to dive into the Led Zeppelin part of the podcast in, in considerable detail for the next several questions. But I want to ask you a question that you asked in your book. So in one of your interlude interviews, which I want to ask you about um, Enlightened Shade, one of your interviews is with Led Zeppelin publicist, Danny Goldberg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in which you asked him the question I'm about to ask you. Yeah. What do you think makes this band so great? And why do we still care? Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I think I spend most of the book trying to answer that question. You know, it's not a hard question to answer, you know, in a very, in a very uh, flip manner, you know, very light manner. Well, you know, you get four great musicians together and you, know, you, you, you get them dedicated to a cause and, and uh, you know, Jimmy Page is one of a kind. And, you know, you could say, you can go and say all of that stuff, but we've, we've talked a bit about just a, a, a small amount of the things that really made the band different and exceptional. And one is, uh, you know, you take Jimmy Page and uh, he had all this incredible experience experience you know in the recording studio as a as a studio musician and a lot of experience playing the united states and playing on big stages with the yardbirds and he walks into the band with this already in his back pocket now there's very few rock bands that have that opportunity you know next you have john paul jones who is also an incredible studio musician had played with 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 hundreds of bands, but not only that, but a schooled musician and a schooled arranger. He used to do orchestral arrangements and so on and so forth for a bunch of different rock people during that era. Um, um, and you had those two guys with that sort of intelligence, knowing what they want to do. When they saw Robert Plant and John Bonham, you know, they could they could figure it out. So, you know, a lot of rock bands start a, a lot of them, 90 percent of them probably just start with random kids that are pulled together that come from a neighborhood. You know? right. And and uh, and so they'll, they'll have their own little skill levels and stuff like that. But by the time Led Zeppelin started, they, they already had this huge, uh, you know, leap ahead of everybody. They had a, a level of sophistication that a lot of people don't have. And then you just have, uh, you know, Paige, who is a brilliant musician and composer and, and, uh, and uh, you know. So, so let me ask you, why do we still care? Because it's good, you know. There's so few things in the world that are genuinely, unarguably good. You know, <laughs> and, and you can you can quibble with this or that, you know, but when you listen to, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin four Stairway to Heaven, you know, something like that, it's just it's undeniable. But I think maybe part of the reason it was able to hang in there for so long and why we still care 
is because um, to get back to a point that I made earlier, Jimmy was so ahead of his time in terms of recording and production. So, uh, again, his recordings of John Bonham's drum sound, for example, are still being uh, sampled and, and used in hip hop and all over the place these days. The records still hold up. They still sound they still sound modern. They don't sound like, um, <clears throat> you know, I want to hold your hand by the Beatles, you know, something <laughs> different. Not, not to knock that. I mean, you know, I want to hold or, your hand. Or punk, you it's, know, punk or disco or those sorts of things. Or like sometimes you can hear a song on 80s on 8 on XM and you're like, oh, my God, that sounds like 1985 all over the place. And, and I think that it, it's funny. The music has roots in folk, but it, you know, the um, cover of Led Zeppelin 4 shows uh, a knockdown sort of wall, you know, sort of a older world wall. And in the background, the city of a modern urban, um, you know, landscape. And so it had this combination of the future of the past. And what you end up is something that's timeless. And uh, so, you know, you respond to it. It's like saying, well, why do, why, does, why do people still care about this Bach guy or this Beethoven guy? You know, I mean, because, you know, what they did was undeniable and it had uh, legs, you know, <laughs> it, 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 could, it, was, it was interesting enough to take into the future as well as the past. And they made that comment. I, I think this is in your book where like, you know, they, they bridged the sixties and the seventies, the end of the sixties and the beginning of the seventies. And they were, they were intentional about that, creating a new sound. Go ahead, Brad. Yeah. A new sound that we're still, um, that we're still coming to grips with today. You're listening to leaders and legends, a podcast presented by veteran strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise. And sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. I'm sure loving uh, sponsoring this Led Zeppelin podcast, the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. God love them. Page would certainly like it. <laughs> Garmon Construction, <laughs> Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Brad Tolinsky, author of Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. I read this book. I could barely put it down. It is a time warp, not only to the 70s, but also to an era uh, beyond the 70s, because the book doesn't just chronicle Led Zeppelin, but Jimmy Page's entire career. It's beautifully written and wonderfully arranged, much like Led Zeppelin songs itself. And if you do not believe me, then perhaps you'll believe this fella who says light and shade illuminates the haunted genius of Jimmy page in an original and completely satisfying way. The conversational dynamic between the author and the subject reveals a wealth of info about the man, the music and the magic. That's from Kirk Hammett of Metallica. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great to, be back here chatting. Led Zeppelin one is widely considered the greatest debut album of all time. Rick Beato. I'm sure you're familiar with um, just ranked it. Number one on his list. Where would you rank it? And what was the album's impact? 
Led Zeppelin one. Yes, sir. His he had that as the greatest debut album. Number two was Boston. Number three was Van Halen one. I think four was Jimi Hendrix, but I'm not sure. But he had Led Zeppelin one as the greatest debut album of all time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely one of the greats. I don't know, you know, I mean, like when you have, I still feel like the Beatles meet the Beatles is still probably of more consequence, probably culturally and and historically. But Led Zeppelin one is, I I could see Rick, see Rick is a music nerd for those of you who don't (laughs) know Rick Beattie. And and Rick Beato has agreed to come on the podcast. I took a flyer, invited him. He's busy for the spring, but I'm going to reach out to him in April at his request. And Brad, I hate to say this. I dropped your name immediately in the email to ask Rick to come on the podcast. So I hope that was okay. That's that's fine. But Rick is a total music uh, hound, a a super uh, music, instrumental music guy. And, uh, and I think what he was getting at there is, again, sort of what we've just been talking about, um, is that as a debut, it changed a lot of things. It changed the way people approached recording uh, the guitar, wrote, approached the way people recorded the drums. And um, I think it also showed... Um, how far, how many different directions that single rock band could, you know, what, what they could do on, on one record. It didn't have to be about one sound. It could be about many, many different things, but I think sonically it's, uh, it's probably could be argued the first really sort of 21st century record, the first really modern sounding record because of the approach that Jimmy took to uh, recording all the instruments. I was just going to question along those lines. It seemed that, that, that page had, and this, this is discussed in your interviews with him. It's part of your book that he had a strategic plan that was far beyond just the recording of one album. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know how detailed that plan was. I don't know, but he had a general idea of, of what he wanted to do with the band, um, you know, recording wise and, and sonically. And then each record is sort of an exploration of that. I I guess getting back to your, um, you know, getting back to your other point, Robert, don't get, you know, everybody out there. I mean, believe me, I am a huge, huge Led Zeppelin fan. I mean, you know, I, I worked on this book with Jimmy for close to 20 years. There's about 20 years of interviews that we did over a long period of time. I, I love the band. But I do think maybe the thing that hold, held Zeppelin back, held, holds number Led Zeppelin one back just a bit from being regarded as the greatest debut is it took a longer time for Robert to figure out what he was doing in terms of lyrics. Like lyrically, 
you know, it's 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 a lot of it, there, there's not a lot of substance there. It's mostly like recycled ideas from blues songs and things like that, you know. And doesn't but, Jimmy talk about that in your interviews with him? How how Page, excuse me, how Robert Plant grew as a lyricist through the career? Absolutely. Musically, Led Zeppelin one is, like I said, it's sort of unapproachable, unassailable, you know. But lyrically, I think that it it holds it back a little bit from having as much cultural significance as it could have. If I'm going to be maybe overly intellectual about that. <laughs> is it, um, it? I was born in 67. Yeah. I have three older siblings. I think they're about your age. They're born in 58, 59 and 60. Mm-hmm. And so I was lucky enough to be introduced to Led Zeppelin at a very young age. But I was too young uh, to comprehend how enormous the Led Zeppelin phenomenon was. Please describe as best you can to the Leaders and Legends podcast audience the incredibly massive juggernaut that was Led Zeppelin in the 1970s. Well, they were just fantastic on every level. I mean, and and really, I mean, fantastic they were almost like a they were almost like a, a fantasy object they were almost like a disney special or something like that in in a weird way i mean i grew, <laughs> in, I grew up in a small mid, midwestern town you know in taylor michigan and detroit uh detroit area of michigan uh and um I don't know, you know, like I was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was just the sticks. It was like, you know, you had your Kmart over here. You had your little suburban town over here. And then all of a sudden, Led Zeppelin comes out with these weird records of like that summon up like medieval times and and uh you know the the sort of darkest chicago blues and uh, um you know all of these super psychedelic sounds and everything like that and when you're when you're a kid in the middle of nowhere and this thing is dropped upon you and it's done by real people not like like a like fiction you know it's not like a movie it's like real people actually producing this stuff yeah, that that's entertainment for hours. I'm sorry. That's that's back when there's only with only three channels on television. <laughs> don't, but, don't scare our audience. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. But it's 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 that's why it's sort of hard to explain. It's really like like if you could imagine, uh, you know, the horse and buggy period. All of a sudden, the flying saucer. <laughs> well, and you think about it, pre- was like something from outer space, you know, but pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre all this stuff that we can, that you and I, and a lot of people listening can still remember the, the debut or the dropping of a Led Zeppelin album was an event. Yeah. Like, do you remember thinking or like, oh my God, Led Zeppelin's got an album coming out and I can't wait to get it. And then you get it and the album is called Physical Graffiti and you listen to the entirety of a double album and you're like, this is everything I was hoping, was waiting for and more. Do you remember that anticipation as a fan? Well, yeah. I mean, my favorite record and it may, may be my favorite Zeppelin record. It was, is actually um, House is the Holy. 
Um, and it came out on my birthday. <laughs> so that was, I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's great. But also, you know, I mean, especially for us, like I'm a guitar player. So these records would come out and it wouldn't only be just great to listen to, but you'd also be sitting there like, like, what is the next thing I have to learn on my instrument or, Oh my God, what's he doing? You know, that it had all of these different sort of elements brought into it. Um, You know, not only, not only the music itself being so bigger, larger than life and fantastic, but I also did see them actually live too. And um, Uh, that's one of my classes you're anticipating. I was going to ask you, what was your favorite Led Zeppelin album? I love house of the Holy. No quarter is my favorite song on the album. What's your favorite song on house of the Holy? I love no quarter. I love the song remains the same. I just think the whole thing sounds great. Like I, I think it's a better, their best sounding recording as well. Best, you know, Eddie Kramer, um, who, uh, did the engineering for all of the Jimi Hendrix records, did most of the engineering on, he also did most of the engineering on Led Zeppelin too, did uh, Houses of the Holy. And to me, uh, not only the compositions, just amazing. And, and each one takes you on a different uh, adventure, but the technical recording of it, I think Bonham's drums sound the greatest they ever sounded on that record. You said you saw Led Zeppelin live. That was another one of my questions. Which tour did you see? I saw, um, you know, the, the tour that was essentially immortalized on um, the song remains the same movie. I saw that, uh, you know, the, the tour that they did around houses, of the Holy 73, 74, sometime around there at Cobo hall. There's, there's a funny story about that. People say, well, you know, you, you have these conversations with Jimmy and, he, had, he remembers so much detail, like it's crazy for a guy that supposedly lived such a wild life. You, you would imagine that he would be like a little burnt out. <laughs> I have to say that that Jimmy's memory is extraordinary. And uh, one time we were we were just talking casually. And this was many, many years later. This was like in the 90s sometimes. And, and Jimmy said, ask me if I'd ever seen the band live. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I saw this tour. And he says, well, where did you see it? And I said, um, I saw it on Cobo Hall in Detroit. And then he goes, which night was it? So first, that tells me, A, he remembered in this yeah. tour that he played Cobo Hall more than uh, once. And they did. They played two nights. And I said, I don't, I don't remember uh which night it was i go but i know like in the middle of the show like you and robert did this whole extended almost like a theremin uh which is this electronic sort of instrument uh theremin battle on stage and jimmy's like oh yeah 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 he goes "Uh, that was the second night he goes (laughs) because we came backstage afterwards and uh, Peter Grant yelled at both me and Robert and told us to never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, this was, you know, 30 years later, and he remembered that they had played there two nights, and he remembered which night they had the theremin. You know, like, like to me, out of the hundreds of gigs that they played that he could remember that, you know, suggests something about his his memory and his um his sort of uh, brilliance 
How many times did you see them? I only saw them the one time. Um, they, they came back to Detroit again afterwards. They played uh, the Pontiac mm-hmm. Silverdome, which was this gigantic stadium. Right. And I'd went there to see the Who play and almost was trampled. And I was like, I'm never going to go back there again. You know, just oh, the days of festival seating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so my brother Michael rubs it in my face that he saw. Of course, both my all of my siblings have seen Led Zeppelin, and, and obviously I was too young. Yeah. Uh, but they, my brother rubs it in my face that he saw Zeppelin during the tour for Presence. Yeah. Which I think is his favorite album. Achilles' Last Stand is his favorite song. Yeah. For nine dollars. Yeah. You remember how much you paid to see Zeppelin for the Houses of the Holy Tour? Probably around that time, it was probably around seven bucks. I mean, <laughs> it's it was a different time, you know. I mean, it was so funny because it's uh, ludicrous to think about seeing Led Zeppelin for seven dollars. <laughs> I, I was born, I was still pretty young, you know, like when Zeppelin was around. So when I saw them play, I was I was in seventh grade. You know, I was in junior high. I was it was pretty young, but I would go and see shows all the time with my friends, and um, we would rarely ever buy tickets. We would just go to the place on the night of the show and buy them off the street. And back then, you know, like you would say, uh, "I'm going to go take the scalpers," and now that means like if you bought the ticket from the scalper you'd pay twice the price or whatever to get your ticket or three times or whatever. Back then it was always just a bunch of hippies hanging out saying, Hey man, my friend didn't show up. Can you take this ticket off of me for $2 instead of $5? You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I, I would do it. Yeah. Stay in the theme of seeing Led Zeppelin live, seeing Paige perform live. That was part of their strategy, especially in the United States is putting on these two and a half hour, three hour uh, long concerts and you you talk to page a lot about this in your book that that was something that separated them i mean the beatles famously stopped touring but led zeppelin went the other way and that is if you want the led zeppelin experience you have to go to a concert is that is do you think that was a i mean it apparently was but a conscious successful uh dispositive decision on their part like come get the whole experience and you'll leave a bigger fan than when you came yeah i think that i mean i think there were a few things um one is i think these guys just like they like to play music you know like if they were going to show up someplace like why not play for two hours (laughs) you know why not play for three hours i mean you know if you're having fun and, and you're you're playing with you're one of the four greatest musicians on the face of the planet. You know, if any, you're a musician and you enjoy making music, there's really nothing better that a, you you know, you're playing with all these great players in front of people who completely adore everything that you do. I mean, who, who wants to leave, who wants to leave that space, but to Paige's point, he loved to improvise. And uh, I think when they went to do the, reunion tour um at first the idea was well we'll just do an hour and a half and then we're like well wait if we do an hour and a half we'll only be able to play like four songs (laughs) 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 people are going to be disappointed you know (laughs) 
you know, basically confused would run 20 to 30 minutes in, in and of itself. You, know? you mentioned his name uh, a little while ago in the interview, and I wanted to bring it back around to it because I've actually read a couple articles about him in preparation for talking with you. Mm-hmm. And that is manager Peter Grant. He was either famous or infamous, depending on your point of view. But how important was Peter Grant to Led Zeppelin's success? And and how did Grant's style of management, his emphasis on the band and the band's needs, change rock music, concerts and tours? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's you know, you can look at Led Zeppelin's influence and, and uh, we've just talked about to even uh, aside from the music itself, like how they recorded their music, the actual recording process, how it how it's impacted music. There are so many things about that band that that changed the music world. And one was how they were managed and how they how they were toured. And um, a lot of that was uh, G- um Peter Grant, their manager, plus Jimmy, Jimmy, who had ideas on how he wanted his band to tour and how he wanted them to be treated. You know, um, it's funny, but you still had, you know, the 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 rock music world and the culture was shifting radically at that time, and in the '60s, you had. Uh, a lot of the British invasion bands were being uh, managed by these old, almost old school guys, you know, who really, <laughs> you know, cigar chomping, like, you know, listen, kid, you know, I'm going right. to go on the road and you're going to, you're going to get a bologna sandwich and you're going to like it. <laughs> kinda, kinda. <laughs> and these bands weren't making money. I think you're in your book and in your interviews with Paige talk about the Yardbirds hardly made any money on their concerts, concerts and, and appearances. Yeah, exactly. Because they were being managed by, again, sort of old school showbiz guys. Uh, And even in England, it was even more um, uh, um, it was even more rough and tumble. You know, Uh, there's a story. I'm going to blank on the manager's name. Uh, But anyways, there is a basically a story about how originally Jimmy wanted Steve Marriott uh, from Humble Pie to be the singer for Led Zeppelin and, uh, you know, was planning on approaching Marriott and Marriott's manager got wind of it and basically sent word to Paige that, yeah, you can ask him to join uh, the band, if, but not if you want, you know, still have your fingers the next day (laughs) (laughs) you know it was it was it was it was it was tough and and the and these managers saw the bands as being their property and um and it was peter grant who really uh started seeing the bands as being the guys in the driver's seat and giving them that that sort of respect and um I think Peter Grant just enjoyed the whole idea of that, that, you know, they were like pirates or something, you know, they were, they were out, they were ruling the world. They were making the record companies cower. They were making the promoters cower. You know, they were just getting this money. They were just, and, 
he said, like, I, I don't get it. Why should we that that's creating the product make 10%? You guys make 10%. You guys are the ones that are going to do that. You're just marketing what we're doing. And of course, he was absolutely right. It went on to affect uh, all sorts of uh, managing and touring and recording arrangements. And there's that beautiful picture that's taken with Led Zeppelin outside their airplane, which, you know, today you kind of think, well, of course they had their own airplane, but back in the seventies, that was a whole nother level of superstardom. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They were one of the first guys to really do that, but you know, whose plane that was, do you know the story behind this? Isn't it in your book? Um, Or I read it and read it in a different article. I do a little bit, but you you go ahead in, in my book, but I ended up working on some other project later and I had so much fun doing it, but it was owned by Bobby Sherman. Okay. Who was a teeny bop idol during, he was like a TV star, teeny bop idol during the sixties. He, he, he was in this uh, TV show called here come the brides, but he had all these just like, like he was the Justin Bieber of his day, so to speak. (laughs) And, uh, and he was the guy that came up with this whole concept because he had to do these shows and he had to do it like a TV show and he had to be doing concerts. So he, he had to bypass the whole commercial airplane thing. So he's, so he got together with his manager and said, let's just buy planes. Let's just do this thing. Let's, and we'll provide them for rock bands who want the same kind of thing. And so Led Zeppelin was sort of their Guinea pig. It was their, they bought the plane and then they went after different bands to, to, uh, to to use it and zeppelin was the first you talked about peter grant uh, and how he changed things but jimmy page in, in coordination with grant and the rest of the band but jimmy page changed things in the sense of how the contract between led zeppelin and atlantic records was negotiated the terms of the contract how much control led zeppelin would have over their music jimmy was a big part of those negotiations and changing how how contracts were written you discuss it in your book yeah talk about it please for just a minute about no singles and various other ways where led zeppelin exerted control over its own music so this was sort of the the really interesting approach was this so jimmy usually the way and it's still to this day a lot of times like that although maybe a little less these days but um usually the band got signed to the would would have a demo or somebody would come and see them and the band would sign to a label and the label would give them x amount of money and then they would go off and record their record and then everybody sees sort of what happens well jimmy sort of knew what he had and he knew it was great um and so what he he decided to do was to produce the record himself he put up he put up the money for Led Zeppelin one and recorded the whole thing, and then took the final product to the record labels, knowing that once they heard it, they would just be blown away and would want it. And so he was right. You know, they they took it to a couple of different labels. They desperately heard. They saw how good it was. They desperately wanted it, and that put Jimmy in the driver's seat. Jimmy and Peter Grant. And uh, he was able to say, well, if you want this record, this is how it's going to be. I want to have, you know, artistic control. Um, 
you know, I want to have X amount of, uh, you know, money and royalties. Here's how I want it to be paid. And of course, some of these people could have said no, but they heard what they heard on the uh, on the Led Zeppelin one record, which nobody owned, you know, in the beginning uh, was fantastic. And they knew that they were going to make money. So they acquiesced. Now, I don't think really Led Zeppelin necessarily changed that for artists. Um, they they probably woke some artists up to the possibility, but it didn't really change the music industry. It's just what Jimmy was able to get away with because of the obvious greatness of the band. We have a few more minutes with Brad Tolinsky, author of Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. Fair to say that Led Zeppelin had a love affair with the United States of America and vice versa. And how important was the colonies to Led Zeppelin's success and its legend? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't hard for Jimmy to, to see that, uh, you know, England was the size of one of our states. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that they just looked across the water and said, you know, holy cow, there's 50 of those on the other side. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's gold in them in our hills, so to speak, you know. So I think that they uh, they made it a point to uh, to really work the U.S. and to tour like crazy because they knew that if they could break this territory, um, you know, the money would come rolling in. Uh, and, you know, they were right. Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page, and music critics. How would you describe that combustible mix? You read some of the uh, critiques of albums like Led Zeppelin 2, which is seems to me just, it, that's my favorite Led Zeppelin album is Led Zeppelin 2. Uh, but some of the early reviews of it were just savage. And then, you know, of course, 45 years later, Rolling Stone writes again, writes, you know, does it again and says it's five stars or whatever. Did the critics just not understand Led Zeppelin or vice versa? Yeah, yeah, they didn't. They didn't. And there's a lot there's a lot of reasons for that. And some are, you know, again, you can't take the, these records out of the time that they were made. It's hard to see that time. Uh you know, because again, we're sort of 50 years, 60 years on, but, uh, at that time, you know, um, the sixties attitude of, you know, politics and, and, uh, the notion of musical purity and all these in a bunch of other, uh, ideas, uh, were, were prevalent. And in the book, Jimmy says, Look, they like the critics didn't understand us because they were still rooted in the 60s. And we were looking towards the next decade and what was going to happen and what in the, the part we wanted to play in it. And um, it, it's funny, he he was at the time he was so confused that the music critics didn't understand what he was doing at the time. And, yeah. uh, and 
he was like, I don't get it. I mean, we're selling all these records. People are flocking to see us. um, And yet we can't get any respect. You know, we're like Rodney Dangerfield. (laughs) And, uh, And, but I think now looking back at it, he'd say this, and I think he's correct is that they were, they were blue. They were navigating the seventies and, most of the rock critics at that time were were still sort of stuck in the '60s and with those types of attitudes and and ideas. Is it fair to say that that Led Zeppelin and Jimmy and and Robert Plant and everyone else seemed to just and I read this in a in a John Paul Jones interview that and it may have been the one in your book, although I read a few more in preparing for this podcast, but that the band members just generally kind of got along. You know, that so many of the bands, the bigger bands, they have this conflict, right? Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Eddie Van Halen, David Lee Roth. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? But but in general, it seems that the the band got along well enough to create this music and there weren't these gigantic ego fueled tensions that some big bands have to deal with. Now, um, I think the beginning it got along re- really well because Basically, Plant and Bonham were enlisted from the from the sticks of of England, <laughs> and it was such an incredible opportunity, and they were so thankful, you know, uh, of getting pulled out of the middle of nowhere into this band that was all of a sudden gigantic. That why on earth would they have any problems with uh, with Jim? And, or, and or, I think it, or, I think it's a quoted. Forgive me. I think it's a quote in your book. I'm sorry, Brad, that you said that Paige couldn't believe that Plant wasn't more famous. Like this guy, how is this guy not more famous? Forgive me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Plant, I mean, Paige thought that there, was, there must have been something quote unquote wrong with him. <laughs> <laughs> that nobody had him in a band already. Um, yeah. So, so, but, but then, you know, as time went on, as it does, and egos got bigger and and the drugs became more prevalent in the band. You know, that things started to go a little bit sour. But, um, you know, for their first, you know, for the first five, six records, everything just sort of hummed along. It was really the drugs that derailed the band, you know. Led Zeppelin seems to have engendered its fair share of jealousy among its rock and roll contemporaries. There's a famous uh, short clip on YouTube where, Pete Townsend of the who basically said, I don't like anything they ever did. And he's, then he's, then he kind of confesses. I don't know if that's because they're so much bigger than we were, but I like all the guys, but I just don't like anything that they did. Keith Richards says that to him, Led Zeppelin is just Jimmy page. It's nothing else other than him. Well, how about that, that jealousy and, and, and uh, at Zeppelin's success and not only its success, but it's impact, just the phenomenon that was Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I mean, you know these guys, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I think you know. I think in the case of of um, of Townsend, I I sort of believe, <laughs> I believe that him and the Who were so competitive. I believe that he couldn't even listen to what they were doing because <laughs> it would just drive him insane. You know, thinking about it. Daltrey, however, was a huge, huge Led Zeppelin fan. Yeah. I would have. I wouldn't mind hearing. I wouldn't mind hearing a, a Jimmy Page Roger Daltrey record. By the way, that 
That would amen. be amen. Uh, pretty interesting. Um, you know, Keith, he was coming from a, a, a sort of a more purist blues purist point of view. So um he's I think to some genuine degree felt like he didn't really like how they were um sort of making this the blues that he loved sort of this larger than life thing. I think he thought that that was a bit of a violation of of his blues purist ethics. So I don't know if it was entirely just jealousy. Um uh but I think uh but there was definitely everybody was was uh was in competition, you know. Everybody was in competition. It was really funny, you know, I was talking to um somebody the other day. Uh who was who was I talking? I was talking with um oh I was talking with I was actually talking with Kirk Hammett of Metallica. And uh I was asking him about like whether he felt competitive with uh you know the other thrash bands or other sure. Guns N' Roses or whoever mm-hmm. they were and he was like yeah he goes I don't I don't want to admit it but yeah you know you're you know you're on the charts and you're you know you want to be number 1 you want your records to sell better than anybody else you know like that, I didn't want any harm to come to anybody. <laughs> sure. yeah, we we wanted to beat we wanted to beat Guns and Roses, or we wanted to you know that kind of thing. And I totally understand it too, because recently my book came out. Uh, you know, the Eddie Van Halen book, uh, um, Eruption Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. And yeah, you know, like I'm looking at the book charts, and you're like, well, I don't want anything bad to happen with Dave Grohl, but. <laughs> Can't his book just like go away so my book can? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an interview, and it might have been on the David Letterman when Zeppelin was on. I'd have to look it up, but we're someone asked the interlocutor asked John Paul Jones about you know the competition between Zeppelin and and the Rolling Stones, and John Paul Jones basically says we didn't consider them competition. Yeah, yeah that's i don't think that's that's a flip answer but i don't (laughs) (laughs) i think they were all in i think they were all friends actually the stones and zeppelin were pretty pretty good buddies but i think they they also felt competitive as well as you were the editor of of a music magazine uh, more than one do rock fans just simply crave news about jimmy page and led zeppelin can they just never get enough yeah i think i think well here's here's sort of the brilliant thing right like the again taking our conversation full circle like this mystique that these bands you know in the 60s and 70s have the stones and zeppelin and I don't know, for some people, Thin Lizzy or whatever it is, whatever floats your boat, you know. <clears throat> Jimmy was smart. The other way he was smart was he only, uh, they only did so much press. Led Zeppelin did very little press. They didn't do that many photo shoots. They kept the idea of mystery and even the occult stuff that we were talking about. You 
no. Jimmy wouldn't play it up, but he wouldn't deny it either because it just created more mystery. It created, you know, a mystique sort of about what they do. And now nobody has any mystique, right? Yeah. Like, you know, he everything bought is Crowley's weird. house. Everything is everything is um, you know, on the on social network, it's all mm. here, it's all, you know, but 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 those bands, nobody really knows tons about them because they kept mm. it quiet and media was different. So now they just want to know. Everybody wants to know everything. Is that one but, of the driving forces for you writing this book is to fill in some of those gaps? Absolutely. Um, and I would say for any of you out there that are Led Zeppelin fans, you should read my book above all others because it <laughs> has the most real information. In it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm coming from it from a different place than many writers come from it come from and i think it's reflected in my eddie van halen book as well um is that i'm a bit of a musicologist like i you know the drugs and the groupies and all that stuff you know that that's fun and we we talk a little bit about that but to me the music and its importance to the last hundred years and how great these guys were and what they were doing and how important it is for other musicians to understand it was the driving force behind this book because Jimmy really hated to talk with journalists because all they wanted to know was the other stuff. Yeah. And he had really devoted his life to being a great musician, a great producer, a great songwriter, a great, you know, all these things. Mm -hmm. And nobody was looking at that. And can, you can imagine how frustrating that is. I mean, arguably, you know, Led Zeppelin is, you know, easily one of the top five rock bands of all time. And one could say maybe the top three, depending on who you're into, you know, could be mm. the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin, say, for example. Right. And there's been tons and tons and tons of stuff written about the Beatles analyzing the music and what they did in the studio. And the same could be said of the Stones. And Led Zeppelin never sort of got that same respect, even though what they did was more innovative because they did it all themselves. They didn't have an outside producer. They were doing it. Jimmy Page was doing it. And almost everybody was ignoring, well, how did you do that? How was that magic done? You know. Mm -hmm. And so Light and Shade came out. It was... And it still is, to some degree, one of the few places you can, um, you know, actually find that out, like, musically, why does it work? And I, and I try to answer that. Jimmy Page recently let, uh, uh, released his own uh, a book. Yeah, but it's only a few of them, and they're enormously expensive, as I recall. Is that right? He's got a new one that he actually, I think... Um, I think it's called anthology or something that is uh, a, a cheaper version of those really expensive ones. And he's been, he's been sharing more. He's been sharing more in recent years on his own, on his own. But I think for the last 10 years, like if you really wanted to know how Led Zeppelin records were made, you would have to buy my book and hear it from Jimmy talking about it. 
Jimmy Page is universally regarded as one of the greatest guitar guitarists of all time, especially field of rock and roll is he on your mount rushmore of rock and roll guitars oh yeah no question you know um there are people that are technically better but in terms of like compositions right songwriting putting chords together riffs together uh and sheer volume of guitar sounds and uh, scenery and vistas or however you want to describe it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he's, you know, it's him and him and Jimi Hendrix are like two of the guys that could see, could not only play guitar, but see where to take it. And, uh, and, you know, where, where it should or could go in the future. Clapton and Van Halen and maybe Beck to make it a fiver instead of a, just four. Um, yeah. I think Jimmy's a little different. I mean, I put I put lump Jimmy together with um, with a page together with Hendrix because they were more than like amazing guitar players. They had this whole studio idea that you know was really um, you know cinematic uh, in a way that uh, those other guys like uh, Van Halen, incredible player. Uh, Jeff Beck, incredible player. Um, you know, uh, I have some other favorites that I like, but none quite had that total view that Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix had in the studio. At the end of the last podcast we did with you, our first podcast with you about Eddie Van Halen, I asked you five questions that we ask of all of our guests. Uh, I won't ask you those again. So to end the podcast, you get a different five questions. And that is, give us, please, the Leaders and Legends podcast audience, your Led Zeppelin ultimate album side. Five songs from actually of any of Jimmy Page's songs, including The Firm and and other um, uh, endeavors. The firm was good. <laughs> Satisfaction guaranteed is a terrific song. Yeah. Uh, so what's your top five Jimmy Page songs? Well, I'm going to go way back to the Yardbirds for at least one of these songs. Um, the first track that he did with, with Jeff Beck actually happening 10, 10, 10 years ago today. Is that how, how you say it? <laughs> it's really <laughs> such, such a great early guitar track. I think it was done in like 67 or something. And it has both Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck going to town on it. And it's, it's a great, a great arrangement. Love that. Um, then I will say. Uh, you know. This is coming off of the top of my head. The thing that that just jumps right out is the Lemon song in terms mm-hmm. of like guitar virtuosity, but also like the vibe of that song is so weird and dark and mysterious. It's just, it starts out with that gong and you're just <laughs> on this weird, mysterious adventure. I think that that's, a, that's an amazing track. And of course, it's got that great unaccompanied guitar solo in the middle of it, you know, so that's way up there. I love the song Remains the Same. I love that sound, uh, that song. It's one of my favorite 
uh, Jimmy Page guitar solos. Uh, it's got all those 12 strings. It's got all these, you know. Um, I also uh, love Achilles' Last Stand. Okay, this is going to be a really long album side. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> it's a long, a lot long. So, so let's see. So that's for one more. Oh my God. I guess I got, got to make it good. I mean, everybody um, expects Stairway to Heaven to be in there. And it's hard to look at that song objectively, mm. you know, because we've all heard it like millions and millions of times. But, but everyone, it is beautiful. But every once in a while, I'll put it on. I remember when my son was. Uh, like turning eight or nine and I wanted to turn him on to some music, you know, we would just put, I just put on stairway to heaven and I was hearing it through his ears sort of. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And that solo is beautiful and the tones are so great and the arrangement is so good. So I'll just, Led Zeppelin fans out there might groan, but I'm also going to put Stairway to Heaven on 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 that list. What's your favorite? Last question, I'll give you a bonus. What's your favorite live version of a Jimmy Page slash Led Zeppelin song? Well, I'll say this. So there's a there's a, a famous Led Zeppelin bootleg called Blueberry Hill. And uh, and it is a great performance. And I think Jimmy was playing, um, I think his playing was on another level earlier in the band's career. Like he was playing so much better. And I think as the band sort of went on, he became a little bit more um, about the, about the the show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. and about the looking good on stage as opposed to hitting every note <laughs> yeah. there's some there's some pretty tough shows out there <laughs> yeah you talk about you you're honest about that in your that yeah. the playing did change yeah the playing did change the playing did change but i mean um you know studio wise i'll never really uh it, it's very hard to critique jimmy i mean he was pretty much on the ball whenever it came to, to the studio recordings and the sound did change. And I don't know if I like it, liked it better. You know, I, in fact, I think his, his guitar sound got thinner at one point I called Jimmy out on that, you know, said, how come, you know, and he, he didn't really see it that way. Like he danced around that subject that made me believe that, he wasn't hearing it in the same way I was hearing it. You know, he thought he's, I was like, well, on this song, this sounds a little thin. And he's like, ah, mm-hmm. a healthy sound to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much you could argue with, uh, with Jimmy Page about his guitar tones. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd say like almost any live recording that you hear of the band through like 1972, 73 is going to be the, uh, the, uh, you know, I, How the West Was One is pretty good. You know, I mean, uh, Kevin Shirley did a great job um, engineering that record. It, it sounds like a 
you know, it's a good one too. But I'm I'm more of a Zeppelin in the studio guy. My favorite live is the, uh, and it's it's very famous on YouTube, uh, live version of the immigrant song where they're playing in some like baseball stadium. I don't know if it's San Francisco or someplace, but it's absolutely perfect. Uh, Australia, Powerful. Australia, yeah, the Australian show you're talking about. That's that's seventy two, seventy three. Everybody is completely and totally on point and perfect. Every instrument plants wailing just yeah. gorgeous yeah as it moves on even uh robert has like you know has more vocal issues and stuff you know but the, the band for its first four years was uh you know certainly one of the greatest rock bands to ever walk the face of the planet that's for sure uh on on, on stages You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Someone who I can't say enough, quite frankly, Brad, for your kindness to come on the podcast. Thank you so much for for giving us your time. Brad Tolinsky, author of Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. If you love music, if you love Led Zeppelin, if you love the 1970s, this is the book for you. It's wonderfully written. You will learn so much. and, And it's one of the best books I've read in a long, long time. Thank you, Brad, for your time today. Thank you, Robert. Always a pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.